If you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 11 through 14. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Last week... We considered our redemption in Christ. Uh, I asked the question uh, of where or to whom are you looking? Uh, Are you looking at yourself and all your sin and in all your failure? Is that where you wallow? Is that where you uh, spend your time uh, being Uh, broken over what you see here? Or have you been convicted by the Holy Spirit that yes, there's sin here, but a Redeemer has been given to you? And in light of your sin, your eyes are drawn to the one who purchased you, who paid the price for you. So that a Christian can be a wallower in our failures, which we ought not be, because this isn't the reality that will last forever. This isn't the truth. This is the dying old man over here. Or a Christian can be one who by faith, in light of the present struggle with sin, actually believes who they are in Christ. The real reality of who we are in Christ, and this is difficult. It seems much more real that all my sin and all my failure is more real than my adoption. The fact that I've been adopted by God, that my eternity is secure in Him. So this week, another question. Are you going to look at your life in the here and now and chase after the things of this world or are your eyes set on your inheritance? Are your eyes set on the future of what is true for you and for me. Any who has put their hope in Christ. And so as we begin, I want us to, uh, these truths are so rich and 
And there's a sense where we, we might say we spent a lot of time in the Ephesians chapter 1, and then I'd say, yeah, but can you find greater truths? If there's ever a place to look, doesn't it seem like we've barely touched the re- these realities that he is pointing to, but to what end? Why is he writing the letter? What's the practical application of being reminded of all these things? And what we've seen so far is that our hope is secure because first it began in the past. These are verses uh, 4 through 6 that before the foundation of the world, you were loved by God and chosen by God to be holy. That you wouldn't live the way you used to live. That you'd begin to fight your sin. That you would be blameless before Him. That you'd be forgiven before the presence of His glory. That was chosen before you were born. That you would be living in the very presence of God, blameless in His presence. And not only in His presence, but we are predestined for adoption as sons into His family. And if we're adopted as sons, there's an inheritance that is given to a son. And that was all in the past. And then last week we saw the redemption that we have in Christ now in the present. We're no longer slaves to sin. We do sin, but we don't have to sin. Our sins are dealt with in Christ. They are gone forever. (laughs) His forgiveness was according to the riches of his grace. They were lavished upon us. However high your sins were, his grace lavished upon you and me. So that we're presently in the here and now redeemed in Christ. And that wisdom and insight were given to us that we can understand the gospel. And last week we saw that this is all a plan of God that you that, that's to unite all things in Christ. Because uniting is needed because sin has broken our relationship with God. Sin has broken our relationship with fellow man. So in Ephesians chapter 2, he's going to talk about that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, both Jew and Gentile reconciled together and reconciled to God. That's God's plan, to overcome the division that sin has created, to even overcome the corruption that has been put upon the earth. The relationship between man and creation is broken. 
George Whitfield said, it should be enough for man that when he walks by a dog and it barks at him like it wants to bite him, and the man perceives in his mind that, man, that dog is evil, and yet that dog is never sinned. That is the part of creation that's been cursed because of the sinner that's walking by. The very dog barking at man. The, the, the very thorns that grow in the fields and in the garden are reminding us that we're the rebels. We're the ones in need of being reconciled. And that there's going to be a uniting of man and God, and man and man, and man and creation. So this was hinted at at the end of our text last week. And we today are going to look at the culmination. We're going to look at where it goes in the future. And then as we read the rest of Ephesians, it it really will make sense. We're going to see how he unites all things in Christ. And then when he gets to chapter 4, when he does all this work that God has done for us in Christ in the first uh, three chapters, we get to chapter 4, and then what does he want from us? What are we to do? How are we to live in light of that? We're to walk in a way worthy, we find out in chapter 4. We're to be humble. Why is that? We've been saved by pure grace. We're to be gentle. We're to be patient. We're to be bearing in love. This is all relational uh, character attributes. We're supposed to be eager for unity and peace. Why? Does he just come up with some nice things that we're to do now? This is where all creation is going. This is why you've probably heard in the news uh, in the last two years a lot about critical race theory or, or CRT, and then you've probably heard Christian leaders say it's anti-gospel. And the reason why they say that and the reason why they're right is it's an ideology that's meant to pit those of one color against those of another color. There is no grace. There is no forgiveness. There's just endless payment. There's no uniting together. And it's not the culmination of history. We are not divided as believers by color or race when the plan that God has predestined is that we all be unified in Christ. And so I just wanted to All this kind of getting in the weeds, I want us to see and remember we're reading the letter to the Ephesians. It's really practical. Why should I try to get along with my wife? Why should I be kind? Why should I be patient? Why should I be humble? Well, here's the question. Do you believe in who you are going to be? 
and where this thing is going? Do you see the culmination? If that's what you're going to be then, then we seek to be that now. We seek to be like Christ in the here and now. So let's look uh, into the future. And how I set this up is, is maybe a little different than normal. We're going to look at this text and we're going to ask questions and give answers to the questions. And so you can see that in your notes. Brothers and sisters, we've obtained an immeasurable inheritance. How? How have we obtained it? We have? Did you know that you've obtained it? That it's yours? How? Answer? We've been predestined by God for this inheritance as adopted and redeemed sons. So far, we can definitely answer with that answer. Look at how he begins in verse 11. In him, in Jesus, the Father is always the main actor, and God is doing his work, or the work that accomplishes all that the Father does for us throughout this whole text is in Christ, in union with Christ. God the Father doesn't just do something for us on the side apart from Christ because we deserve nothing on this side. Everything he does is through the grace of Christ that he's worked for us. Outside of Christ, what do we deserve? We deserve eternal punishment in hell. So once again, we see our union with Christ. It's in Christ we've obtained an inheritance. Now, uh, this is a debated Greek translation. If you have the NIV, it, it'll look different than the ESV here. Um, uh, really, this, this text Uh, The passive form of the verb in in verse 11, uh, we have obtained an inheritance, the SV says, can also be translated, we were made an inheritance. So in Christ, we were made an inheritance that now Christ possesses this new people, which is true. (laughs) No matter which interpretation Uh, you have or which translation you have both are true and there's always a choice as to which one's more likely and out of six commentaries they were split so if you want to study this more and you want to look at this more but the fact that we were an inheritance god's own possession, we, we see this all throughout the Old Testament, Malachi 3.17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I'll spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Or Deuteronomy 9.29, for they are your people and your heritage, whom 
you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arms. And so we see this all throughout uh, the, the Scripture. And, and uh, even in verse 5, if, we, if we're going to look in the immediate con- context, says he predestined us uh, for, for adoption through Christ according to the purpose of his will. Um, no, where I'm, I'm looking for what I'm looking for here. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us uh, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. And and so we've been uh, uh, chosen by the Father. The, The Son has been given a people by the Father. You read John 6, all that the Father gives me, I'll lose nothing. Well, the other uh, way translation is what you see in the ESV is it's us inheriting the, the inheritance. The, the, that would be the emphasis, and that's the one I guess uh, I would lean to, towards. You know, this would be represented in First Peter 1 that, that Scott uh, read this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. He's caused you to be born again to a living hope. So you're going to be a new living person with a new hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. Or in Colossians 1.12, when Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so... uh, in light of the Ephesians uh, being uh, called to consider every spiritual blessing, I think the culmination of the spiritual blessing here is their inheritance. We've looked at what he's done in the past, what he, uh, the reality of our redemption in the present, and what he's doing uh, in the future. And then we see that He's done this having been predestined to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So if we asked, how did I obtain the inheritance? Paul's answer is, we've been predestined by God for this inheritance. And then we could ask the question, according to what did he choose us? What was his basis for choosing us for this 
inheritance, and we, and we see that in, in the second part of verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose, this word is boule, purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel. So counsel is thelema, which means will. So it's according to his purpose. It's according to his will. And just to drive the nail and hammer it home, he says, according to the counsel of his will. Um, and, and so it's according to his purpose, his counsel, and his will. He couldn't be more clear on why or how he predestined, how he decided to do it. God chose. And someone might say, why does he, in Ephesians, why does he keep hammering this? Well, you got to remember that Ephesus is full of people that have put their hope in the Greek gods. And that even, um, even Zeus, uh, what, is, what is said about him uh, is that he bowed to the inevitable will of inscrutable fates. And there is even a goddess, Taike, uh, 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 I think is how you would say it. Uh, we, we've heard the saying, Lady Luck. This would be the goddess, the one who holds uh, the fates. That Zeus, even Zeus is, is, uh, has to bow to. And yet Paul is presenting a God that is in control of all fates. He's above every God. God doesn't bow to anyone, but he's the one who chooses. And then where it says, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That phrase, all things, according to S.M. Baugh, is not a strong enough translation. This is from the word energo. And, and here's what he says about it. Paul expresses the idea that God actually brings his designs into historical effect. Whereas the rendering who works all things is not as clear because it may be uh, taken as a project that's never finished. Uh, so the picture could be that God's up there and he's kind of working all things and hopefully he can bring it to completion where the better way to read this is he, he brings into existence all these historical effects according to the counsel of his will. He makes it happen. He doesn't just work with what he has. He causes it. It, it, it comes out uh, from him. And then we read, so that... In, this is in verse 12. We who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So first things. Notice in verse 12, it's he, he uses we so that we who were 
the first to hope in Christ. And in 13, he says, in him, you also. So what's the distinction between the we and the you also? Well, it's pretty much agreed upon in light of where Paul goes after this, that the we are the Jews. Those who are the first to hope in Christ. They were hoping in Christ uh, before Christ ever showed up. They were waiting for their Messiah. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And then so in verse 13... He's already introduced this idea of uniting all things in himself. He's now speaking to Gentiles. This would be you and I. And he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. And then he says, you were sealed. And so the question that I think is right to ask is, how come our hope, the Jews hope, and the Gentiles believing, I think those are a different way to say the same things, is to the praise of His glory. If the Jews believe in Christ and the Gentiles believe in Christ, how come it's to the praise of God's glory? I mean, yes, Christ had to do the work, but why not give glory and praise to the one who's doing the hoping and doing the believing? Look at what it says. Verse 13, in him, in him, everything you have is in Christ. Paul says, What's more valuable than faith? Saving faith. If you have saving faith, you're secure. It's one of the most valuable things. Well, did you get that on your own? No, this text says, in him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation and believed in him. So even your faith is in him. That's why the Jews hoping is to the praise of his glory. This, 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 this whole section from verse 3 to verse 14 is all God working. It's everything God's doing. God the Father in Christ through the Spirit. It's all God's work of salvation. And here it's like, well, here's where we come in and here's where we do our part. And, and so maybe salvation is synergistic where it's us working with God and then God looks at that and says, that's good enough. But even that says, no, in him, just like in him in all those other things in this text. When you heard the word, you believed. Do you realize if you believe in Christ, the miracle's been done? God's done the work. You've been elected before the foundation of the world. That's why your faith is to the praise of his glory. We're going to see it in spades in chapter 2. You see, you, we're saved by grace, verse 8, through faith, and that not of your own doing. That's not you doing it. And in the 
in the Greek, it's both the grace and the faith is not of your own doing. It's a work of God. Do you need to believe? Yes, you do. You need to believe. Do you need to do it of your own will? Yes, you need to do it of your own will. Can you make yourself born again? No. When you're born again, do you willingly come to Christ of your own will? Yes. But he's the first cause. It's all to the praise of his grace. How can we know that the promised inheritance is really secure for us? How can we know that this isn't just fantasy land? You know, that's how the world looks at Christians. Oh, they're those people that like to imagine all these nice realities. And when things are going wrong, they just tell themselves happy thoughts, happy truths. Yes, they may be more happy than most people. It's because they're the best at positive thinking. They're imagining something great in the future. That's how the world so often looks at Christians. How, how can we now, in him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, I just wanted to show you this. You weren't sealed by the Holy Spirit. You were sealed by the Father. The Father's the one doing the work, but the seal is the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes people want to talk about baptism as a sign and seal. I just want to say, I don't think we want to say seal. Because the seal of our salvation is the Holy Spirit living inside us. You cannot be saved without the Holy Spirit living inside you. And if the Holy Spirit's living inside you, your salvation is guaranteed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When was this promised? When was the Holy Spirit promised? Well, I think that one of the clearest places we have Paul put all this together is in Galatians 3. Uh, in verse 13. And, and you're going to be able to tell that the same one who wrote Ephesians is the same guy who wrote Galatians, because he's going to hit on these same truths that we've been looking at. But he says this, Christ redeemed us, so we talked about last week, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham. Remember back in Genesis 12, verse 2, God's promised Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. 
I'll bless you. There's that word. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'm going to bless you, Israel, Abraham, so that you'll be a blessing. And then in verse 3, he says, I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, now, that's talking about the Gentiles. We're told that through the Christ, through God's servant, a light is given to the nations. From out of Israel, a light of blessing will bless the nations. And so when we read, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word until tells us that we're looking at the future. So the Holy Spirit is given to us as a guarantee that the rest of it is going to come true. Now, how crazy is it for us to doubt at this point that the rest of the promises of God are going to be true for us in Christ? <laughs> Before the foundation of the earth, you were loved. Before the foundation of the earth, you were chosen, that you'd be holy, that you would be blameless, that you would be in his presence, uh, that you would be adopted. Christ came in history and he paid the price so that you can stand presently redeemed. But you really think he's going to come through on the future? Yeah, I think he's going to come through on the future. When the Holy Spirit resides inside of you, you can't point to yourself for the change in your life. This isn't just someone taking up a new leaf. You watch a lost person who's kind of miserable decide they're going to be nice or decide they're going to make good choices. Someone might say, well, their life is transformed. I'd say go talk to their kids, go talk to his wife. Has a person been changed in the heart? And when they are changed in the heart, how can that happen? How can their taste buds change? The God that was just unimportant to them becomes their hope, becomes their life. Christian, you are redeemed. Your sins are as far as the east is from the west. In all the future promises, which we haven't even dove into, are yours in Christ. Your inheritance is secure in Christ. And for us to dive into that inheritance just a little bit, when you think of inheritance in the Old Testament, Abraham was to inherit the land. And Scott has talked about this when he's been preaching through Hebrews. And the land 
represents the blessing of God. Uh, in the land, there is rest. In the land, it is fruitful. So this idea of possessing a safe place, a, a home to live in, where you have protection from your enemies, where there's riches there for you is the picture we get. But also in Jesus' day, the idea, we talked about this some, being adopted as a son, you inherit the position of your father that he had. And as we look in Ephesians here, I just want to give you a little sneak peek and get your praises going in your heart. Because when I look at this, I just can hardly believe it. If we're going to just skip ahead a little bit in Ephesians 1, look at verse 16. Paul says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, here's what he prays for. The, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him. That's, that's just present faith in God. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened... This is hearts that are seen. Last week I asked you to see. <laughs> see yourself as you really are. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That you may know. Now, now why does he want them to see? Why does he want the gift of the Spirit to be given so they can know? That they may know what is the hope which he has called you to. What are the riches of his glory? glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? I think this is talking to our resurrection after the dead, our being brought to the place of perfect holiness, having no more sin, living in the presence of the Trinity in his family. And then it tells us where Christ was lifted to. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he's talking about the authority, the power of Christ. Everything is under him. Every Greek God, that so-called God that they think exists, is far below Christ. Christ is at the peak. And you've been given an immeasurable inheritance, which he unpacks in chapter 2. Just turn there with me. Look at verse 4. 1 through 3 describes who you were before your new, new birth, but it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And when you read verse 6, your jaw to hit the ground. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christian, who do you think you are? <laughs> we got to admit, this is unbelievable. Christ is seated at the right hand of God above every rule and authority. And even when you were dead, he didn't wait till you were good and you picked yourself up. When you were dead, he made you alive. And then he raised you up and seats you with Christ in the heavenly places. No wonder Paul says, Christ in his resurrection destroys the fear of death. I mean, what do we have to be threatened with? Being raised up to heights beyond belief? that we can't even fathom in a perfect family with perfect relationships, with no sin. And then verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I'm just talking about for all eternity. You never get to be the one that's the giver Anything you do is by his grace. And he just piles on more riches forever and ever and ever. Riches of his grace. It's not the things. It's Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Father in whom we have fellowship with. Who do you think you are? You see, Christians can be these odd people. We can actually live in reality. A non-believer doesn't know how bad they are because the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. So the world just compares themselves to other people and they put themselves in a pretty good category. And as they look at themselves, they're blinded to who they really are because they're not comparing themselves to a holy God. But the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And so someone might say, man, Christians must be the most miserable people on the planet because the light of God has shone in on their lives and exposed them, left them naked before God. Yeah, that's true. We can, we, we can look at ourselves in reality and admit who we are in reality, but we're not devastated. Because it was when we were dead in our sins. Work salvation isn't true. You don't clean yourself up. It's when we were dead, God made us alive. We were saved by grace. So although we can look in and say, this is true about myself, the ultimate truth is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This old man that's dying a slow death of crucifixion, will one day finally be snuffed out. And believe it or not, we'll be raised, you and I, Christian, with a body like his, with no sin. 